As you know, we are studying the Gospel of Mark, and today we are continuing in Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. And uh, what we're going to see in today's lesson is opposition. Here's Jesus teaching with authority and doing miracles, and after this awesome miracle of uh, healing the paralytic in Peter's house, you know, where they let him down through the hole in the roof and everything and all the commotion and uh, the notoriety that gave him. Uh, he is going to now meet with quite a bit of opposition because we saw last week at the end that the religious leaders were appalled that he forgave their sins because only God can forgive sins. And of course, with that, he was claiming to be God and proved it by doing the miracle uh, problem is, uh, they looked at him as a threat, and they were opposed to him, the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests uh, who came from Jerusalem to kind of spy on him in his ministry. And the problem in Israel, that there was no separation of church and state. So the religious leaders were also the politicians. So the Pharisees, the, the scribes, the priests, they're also primarily politicians as well as religious leaders. And kind of like today, the politicians were about as honest as this guy. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. You'll turn with me. There are uh, basically three stories in today's lesson. Uh, first, uh, Jesus' ministry to sinners. The religious leaders are going to be appalled that Jesus uh, sits down and eats meals with all these horrible sinners, these tax collectors and, and harlots and what have you. Uh, and so they're going to confront him about that because they would never do that. And secondly, uh, you're going to have a contrast of the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, which is really the biggest part of today's lesson. Uh, Jesus came with the New Covenant of grace to replace the Old Covenant of law. And then thirdly, as an example of that, uh, you're going to see the Sabbath controversy, which really goes throughout all four Gospels. He keeps butting heads with them. It's the clearest and most obvious example of the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, it's legalistic. They've taken simple laws that God gave, like the Fourth Commandment, you shall not work on the Sabbath. I mean, it sounds pretty simple. But when the lawyers got a hold of it, they said, okay, what is work? And they came up with 39 different categories of work and each one of the categories has about uh, 20 or 30 subcategories. And so by the end of the day, you know, you've got about a thousand different things that you can or can't do. And it becomes impossible. Uh, and that's what happens when you uh, generate a works-based religion when it's all about you keeping a very difficult legalistic law. And so Jesus is going to shoot holes in that. And through that, you're going to see that Jesus' uh, new covenant of grace is far superior to the old covenant. All right? 
so the Old Covenant, just real quick, uh, did he make this up? Was he the first one to talk about this? No, all the Old Testament prophets also said that uh, even though they had an Old Covenant that God had given them, which was basically the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments were God's perfect, holy standard that they were to keep. And so he, he basically said, here's where the bar is. Now, of course, that would be like someone saying to me and most of you, the bar here on the high jump is seven feet. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to jump seven feet. I could work out, you know, for the next five years, all day, every day, and I'm not going to high jump seven feet. And for the looks of this grape, neither is anybody else. <laughs> uh, and so this, uh, in a uh, holiness standard, this bar is set at seven feet. And so it's obvious and clear that uh, there's no way to be perfect. And yet God said, you shall be perfect as I am perfect. And you must be holy as God is holy. And he gives his perfect standards so they'd have it in black and white. Again, the Ten Commandments. Uh, they couldn't keep it. That's the whole Old Testament. They were unable to keep it, right? I mean, they failed terribly. And so the prophet says, okay... Uh, God is going to take mercy on, on you and bring you a new system of grace. And so the, all the Old Testament prophets predicted it. Uh, Jeremiah said, Behold, their days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the old covenant, which I made with their fathers in the day I took them out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, they couldn't keep that. They couldn't do it, so God had to act. He had to intervene in the person of Jesus Christ to give them a new covenant, and uh, that's what the prophets were predicting. Ezekiel also said, Then, when he brings in the new covenant that Christ brought, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You know, an image of, I will clean up your mess, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. So in the past, you had the word written on stone tablets. But in the future covenant, the new covenant that we are recipients of, the law will be on our heart. There's a big difference between having it on stone tablets and having it on your heart. Example, current example today that's, you know, obvious. If you and I, well, I'll just say, speak for myself. If I, when I go home on the toll road, back to my office on the toll road today, I'm going to go 70 to 80 miles an hour. There will be signs that say 55. But I'll be going 70. And why? Because I don't have a heart for that law. Don't they know I'm in a hurry? I have an excuse. And that's the way the law was to Israel in the Old Testament. They could see it and read it, but they didn't have a heart for it, see? So God had to intervene in the person of Christ and give them a new covenant of grace which is what we're talking about here. 
And the new covenant far surpasses the old covenant. And the new covenant replaces the old covenant. And yet, for some reason that I can't fathom, but you, you can see it in the world today, saw it in Israel during the time of Christ, and it's, and it's uh, the, the, the majority opinion in the world today. Remember, remember the uh, old show, Let's Make a Deal? Well, you know, when you say covenant, a covenant, literally the definition is a contract or a deal. You make a deal. God's making a deal. So at Sinai, when he gave the law, he made a deal. And they were a, the second party to the deal, right? And it's just like that TV show. You know, the host gives you something new and good, the law, but later offers you a new deal behind a different curtain. You want the new deal that's better? You can choose to make a new deal behind this curtain, or you can keep the old deal. Well, for some reason, most people like the old deal. I guess because they have it, and they can see it, and they can try to do it. Even though they're told there's a better deal, they hold on to the old deal. <laughs> so they have to give up the old deal. They're afraid to give that up, apparently, uh, for the new deal. They are tempted to stay with the old deal. So what's, what, what is, you know, where does that old deal category now, if God's replaced it with the new deal, the old deal is now nothing but a great strategy of Satan to make people think they can keep the law. They can be good enough. And so if you go out there today and maybe witness to people, they're basically going to say, or you say something like, if you were to die today, do you think you'd go to heaven? Well, most people would say, I think so. Because I'm really a good person, and I've led a good life, and I've given money to this, that, and the other, and blah, 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 right? Uh, and so, they like the old deal because the spotlight is on me, see? And just like the Pharisees who were so self-righteous, they like to walk around, you know, in their wonderful outfits with their cool hats and say, we're righteous. We keep the law. So then it was all about them, and they could be proud, see, and they could look down on other people. But uh, there's a problem there. It just breeds hypocrisy. They can't keep it. So by lying and saying they keep it, it makes them hypocrites. And, of course, Jesus comes down upon them big time. Uh, and so looking at the Old Covenant, just uh, uh, let me draw out four problems with the Old Covenant. Four problems, the reason they couldn't keep it and why the New Covenant is better. Number one, as I said, the Old Covenant is written on tablets of stone when actually it needs to be internal. The laws that you keep are the ones that are the internal laws, the ones that you have a heart for. You have a heartfelt desire to obey them. And in the New Covenant, God it gives you His Spirit. You're indwelled with the Spirit of God who leads you into that desire. Your desires change as part of the born-again experience. You know, when you come to Christ, you're a new person. The Spirit of God begins to lead you and change your heart, and you actually want to do what's right. You have a totally different uh, way of thinking and, and totally different desires and everything. Secondly... The Old Covenant required a series of human priests to act as mediators. 
The problem then was being human, they were selfish and they exploited people. The history of Israel is full of that. Every single story, they're exploiting the people. Perfect example, during this, the two sons of Eli in 1 Samuel 2, they set up prostitutes in the temple. Had them a little business going there. That's just incredible, but it's the truth. Uh, so the priesthood was corrupt from the very beginning and all the way to the time of Christ, the priesthood was corrupt. Uh, next, the old covenant failed to remove sin. Sin was still there. It didn't have a remedy for it, an antidote for it. It, it was designed to only cover it up temporarily with the animal sacrifices. Uh, but man's need and desire for forgiveness was incomplete. Only Christ could complete it. And then lastly, it was a conditional covenant. The old covenant was a conditional covenant. Had strings attached. If you don't keep it, I'm going to let your enemies come in here and beat up on you and steal all your stuff. And eventually, if you continue not to keep it, I'm going to have them wipe you out and carry the survivors off into captivity, which happened from about the year 135 until 1948. There was no Israel. There was no Israel. Romans came in, conquered them, destroyed everything, took all the survivors, and transplanted them to Europe. You ever wonder how the Jews ended up in Europe during World, before World War II? That's it. And so they were persecuted in Europe and other places, of course, for that period of time, you know, 2,000 years almost. Consequences, strings attached to the old covenant. If you don't keep it, there's consequences. But the new covenant is unconditional. It's based on what Jesus did. And so it is is acceptable to God even though we are sinners because God is looking to Jesus to atone for our sins instead of us ourselves. So when he sees you on judgment day, he won't see just you. He'll see you in that relationship with Christ and know that your sins have been atoned to by him. So the Bible's constantly saying, you who are in Christ, in that relationship with him, so that your sins are forgiven, and God looks at you because you're with Christ, looks at you as righteous. We have no righteousness of our own, but our righteousness is imputed to us by Christ. That's the new covenant and why it is so superior to the old covenant. And, you know, you kind of wonder why, again, why would they want to hold on to that old covenant, and I think it has a, a lot to do with uh, something that is near and dear to all of us, just varying degrees, some of you not so much, some of the rest of you really bad, and that, and that is pride, pride. The Pharisees were very, very, very proud of their accomplishments and, and uh, their supposed righteousness. And uh, they wanted to feel like, you know, I did this. I accomplished this. And they wanted to say, I'm better than you. And you'll see that in the first part of the lesson today. 
they clearly look down upon these people that Jesus has brought in and has forgiven. They say, you, those guys? You know, we're the righteous ones. Not, you're, you're eating with sinners, right? Uh, and so it has to do with pride. It reminds me of the, the joke about the lady who was in church and the pastor was preaching on pride. And afterwards, she came up to him and says, I'm so convicted, preacher. Thank you for that sermon. I'm so convicted. She says, you know, I am a, a sinner. My sin is vanity. He said, how so? She said, I spend all day gazing in the mirror, admiring my beauty all day long. And the minister says, Madam, that's not the sin of vanity. That's the sin of imagination. All right, so last week, now we're actually into the text. Last week, uh, a sick crippled man went to the doctor and he said, your sins are forgiven. So when they let the crippled guy down in, into the room where Jesus was, they asked him to heal him, and what did Jesus do? He said, your sins are forgiven, which kind of blew their mind. It shocked everyone. But today, in today's lesson, what would you think if a sick person went to a doctor and he said, as soon as you get well, then I'll treat you. Go ahead and get well, and then come back, and I'll, I'll take care of you. That's what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees were saying, you can come to temple and you can be part of the services and you can be saved if you're already righteous. So they're basically saying, uh, using the image that Jesus is going to use of a doctor and a patient, someone who's sick spiritually and needs to be healed spiritually, be saved. You know, it, it, it's like the Pharisees saying, as soon as you get well, then... I'll treat you. But Jesus was saying a doctor goes to those who are sick. And the image, you know, Jesus is saying, I am like a doctor who's going to heal them spiritually. So I go to the people who recognize that they're sinners. And I don't go to the ones who claim self-righteousness and who are, in fact, hypocrites. So the Pharisees were, uh, their name literally meant separatists. And if you've looked at the Gospels, you know he had more trouble with them than anybody else because of this hypocrisy they had. So separatists was where they got their name because they saw themselves as separate and better from everybody else. They were separated from everybody by their holiness. So that gives you a little inkling of what they're like. Therefore, when Jesus pursued sinners, when he went to these sinners like in today's story, uh, they were shocked. They were outraged. They saw this as scandalous. Because of his unique teaching and his miracles, Jesus' fame and popularity was spreading. But now Mark will show the opposition that the Pharisees, the religious establishment, has to Jesus and this new covenant ministry that he's brought into the picture. And I was thinking, you know, surely there's some kind of uh, value to this opposition because Christ is actually confronting these guys. We saw it last week. He knows what they're thinking, and he tells them how wrong it is. He confronts them with it. 
last week, and he's going to do the same thing here. So there must be something good, some reason why Jesus is, is doing these confrontations. And I think the opposition has a value in this way. Christ is better able uh, to define who he is and what the gospel is in these collisions with what you might say is the opposite of him, which is the old covenant. So he's drawing out the weaknesses of the old covenant and the benefits, superiority of the new covenant in these oppositions, in these uh, confrontations he's having with these people. All right? Um, So look at the text, verse 13. He went out again by the seashore. And you know Capernaum's right down there by against the Sea of Galilee, so it wasn't too far. And he's teaching. And the multitude were coming to him. And he was passed by. As he passed by, he saw Levi. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So uh, Levi uh, was the same guy that wrote the gospel of Matthew. Matthew and Levi are the same guy. And you say, well, what's his, what's his name? Which, which is it? Well, as you know, uh, Jesus kind of gave new names and sometimes Greek names to his Jewish apostles, Jewish uh, disciples. And just like Simon became Simon Peter, uh, Matthew, Levi actually was a Jewish name that Jesus uh, changed to Matthew. And because Matthew meant gift of God. And so he would give his disciples new names quite a bit. So Matthew and Levi are the same guy. And he was a tax collector. That's why he's sitting in the tax office. And you're wondering, what, where's the tax office? Well, in the Roman system... You had uh, three to four categories of taxes. First of all, just to explain uh, how this worked, because they were always local people that collect the taxes. And the Romans uh, set up a series of taxes and then sold the rights to people to be uh, tax collectors, knowing that they would make a lot of money and they, could, uh, they were willing to pay for that. Because uh, the taxes that were charged were typically uh, a poll tax uh, on all adult men, a ground tax if you owned land, 10% of all the produce that came from the land went to the Romans, and there was an income tax, 1% of your gross income also, and then there was a tax on all uh, duties, imports, on all duties, and everybody on the Roman roads, because the Romans built all the, all the good highways, anybody that would walk or travel along them would have to pay a toll tax. So he was probably in uh, one of those offices on the toll tax road uh, collecting money. If they could collect more money than the Romans wanted, then they could keep it. And so naturally people... Uh, <laughs> could see the opportunity here to extort more money. And most of these guys had some thugs that worked for them or kind of a little private army that would go and demand more money and uh, collect more than the Romans were actually charging. And that's why the uh, locals, the Jewish people, hated these guys. 
Because not only did they have to pay taxes to the Romans, but they always got, you know, had to pay to these other guys even more than that. And when they looked at somebody like Levi, he was a symbol of Roman occupation. He's part of this system of occupation. He's a collaborator. So they hated all the tax collectors. I know most of us love IRS agents. And, and when they come for an audit, we're very happy and we open our offices to them. Nobody likes them. But in those days, it was even worse. They were really thought of poorly because of the extortion and how they uh, made the people's life miserable. In fact, uh, in, in Galilee, uh, the, most of the land had been lost because they uh, charged such a hefty tax that the people had to borrow money to pay it, and then they would lose their land because they couldn't pay that, and so they became tenant farmers on what had been their own land before the Romans came. You can imagine how that made people feel. Their old homestead had just been stolen, you know, and you were still there, you know, and having to give all the money, income, to the bad guys. So they uh, hated the tax collectors, as is pretty obvious here. So verse 15, it came about that he was reach, reclining at the table in Levi's house, and many other tax gatherers and sinners were, were dining with Jesus and his disciples. I think Levi said to all of his friends and buddies and co-workers, you're not going to believe this guy and how awesome he is and what he's done for me. I'm a different person. You've got to come and meet him. And so all these other people that were known sinners and tax collectors came to Levi's house to meet this guy who had changed Levi's life. And so they're there having dinner with him. And, you know, they didn't have uh, electricity. <laughs> they didn't have air conditioning. So all the homes are open and people on the roads, you know, can look in and see what's going on in the houses. And they saw, the uh, Pharisees looked in there in verse 16 and saw what was going on. That he was eating with sinners and tax gatherers. And they began saying to the disciples, why is he eating with them? He's drinking and eating with tax gatherers and sinners? We would never do that. How disgusting. We would feel dirty and filthy just to be in their presence. And to actually have to sit down and eat with them is incomprehensible. We could not do it. So to them, it was like a scandal. Jesus claims to be a religious leader, and he's consorting with them, known sinners, right? And hearing this, Jesus went out to confront them. And listen to what he says. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. So he uses the doctor-patient deal as an image of what he's doing in a spiritual realm. He says, I did not come to call the righteous. And by that he means self-righteous. Because it's clear in his ministry and through the whole Bible there are no righteous people, you know. I've had a lot of people say, um, oh, I know all these people that don't believe in God, and they're really good people. And I said, God, you just disagreed with the whole Bible. 
I have to determine which source I'm going to go with. So, they, so he says, I didn't come for you Pharisees, you hypocrites, who claim to be righteous. You're on your own. I came for the sinners who, who admit their sin and come to me in humility and contrition and repent. So the new covenant that Jesus is describing. So verse 18 they said, okay, whatever, but look, we got another bone to pick with you. The, these disciples and the Pharisees were fasting because they did that. Fasting was only required in the law on the Day of Atonement. But they, in their legalism, had said, you know, we are so religious, we're going to fast every week. And so Jesus says, you can find this in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, don't be like the Pharisees who go and fast and they, wore, they wear their worst clothes and they put makeup on to look like they're tired and beat down. And they go, oh, I'm sacrificing so much. And they go out in public and tell people about it. Oh. He says, don't be like them. If you are going to do that for the right reasons, do it in private, and it'll be between you and the Lord. See? So the Pharisees fasted. And so, but when Jesus and his own followers didn't do that, they came and said, and he says John's disciples are talking about John the Baptist. You do not fast? Why don't you and your disciples fast? And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast. Do they? If there's a wedding, if there's a celebration, are they fasting? No. They're celebrating. They're eating. They're drinking. They're happy. Everybody should be happy that the Messiah is here. So as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. They celebrate. But he says, you know what? Get ready, bud. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, that's him, and then they'll fast on that day. The day of judgment is coming. So, Jesus is now going to tell a couple of parables in verse 21 and 22. A lot of imagery, but his point is here that the old covenant is incompatible with the new. You can't have it both ways. Just like the TV show, let's make a deal. You can have this curtain or that one. This curtain's better. Do you want this curtain? But you've got to give up this one. You can't put them together. You can't have them both. And so you have the, uh, the two parables. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear results. Uh, they would know that because they, you know, being poor, they were constantly sewing up uh, cloth and putting patches on it. And if you had a brand new garment that hadn't shrunk yet, you know, what's it going to do if you put a patch that's already shrunk? It's going to pull and rip it even worse. So that's the image. And then the second one is verse 22. 
No one puts new wine into old wineskins. You know, wine ferments, right? It expands the gas when it ferments. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh new wineskins, and they expand together. All right? So, again, what's his point? The old covenant was good. It had a purpose. The law is righteous and holy. Nothing wrong with it. But the people were sinners and couldn't keep it. And so God and his grace has provided the new covenant of grace that Jesus brought into the world. His gift to us has uh, precedence over the old covenant and replaces the old covenant. And the old covenant is incompatible with the new and vice versa. Uh, that's, that's his point here. You see the images up there. All right? Uh, so, you know, that, this is the way religion is, though. All the world, worldly religions were just like Judaism in the first century. They have all the do's and don'ts, and you have to do this and you can't do that. And it's all about what the person does. Spotlight on the person, see? Spotlight on me. And the leaders are all total hi hypocrites in all these religions. You, know, you could go to any of the leaders in any of these world religions, and if you look closely enough, you'd find some bad things. There are no righteous people. And, but what do they do? In the worldly religions that people make up, uh, they give you a formula, a formula to get to heaven or to become uh, holy or whatever. Uh, in Buddhism, you have the four noble truths and the eightfold path. In Islam, you have the five pillars of faith. And so in every single religion, world religion, you've got stuff like that that you have to do and accomplish in order to be saved. It's people trying to reach out to God through works. Christianity is totally different. It's God reaching out to us. He sent Jesus to us. We can't get to Him. He sent Jesus to us, and Jesus has come to sinners and offered himself as an atonement for their sin. Will they receive it? Will they receive it is the question. And so the third section, and it continues this idea of the new covenant versus the old, uh, having taken the Old Covenant and added all these traditions to it, taken the Ten Commandments, particularly in this case the Fourth Commandment, Thou shalt not work on the Sabbath. Again, very simple. Just don't work that day. You know? And why did God do it? Because He loves us and He knows that you need one day off from the incredible preoccupation of yourself. Did I say that clearly enough? You go six days and it's all about me and my job and my work and my recreation and all my projects, my family. Okay? You need one day off from that to relax and come to the Lord and thanks 
and to cool it with all the other stuff, the worldly stuff, right? He knew you need that. It's good for us. He meant it for good. And Jesus is going to prove here that God gave this command in the spirit of the law. We're supposed to take it and obey it in the spirit of the law, not the letter. So you're not supposed to make up a thousand categories of work that you can't do, right? And amazingly enough, even though most of Israel today, are the majority are atheists, they still have all these Sabbath traditions. If you go over there like on, uh, and you're staying in a hotel on Saturday, you better get with the elevator deal because they have what they call a Sabbath elevator. <laughs> and if you're on the 20th floor, you either have to walk up the steps or get on the Sabbath elevator, which they programmed the day before to stop on every floor automatically. Because you can't operate an elevator on the Sabbath. It would be work. It's absurd, right? What they did with it, the legalism of it. And so Jesus is going to, again, confront them on this issue of the Sabbath. And so you have the Sabbath controversy here. Look at verse 23. It came about that Jesus was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. In the law, it had said that the poor and the hungry had the right, have you got that Deuteronomy passage? The, yeah, uh, two, they called it gleaning. You could walk through a field and take a little grain for yourself, right? So what they were doing was perfectly legal. Jesus and his followers walking through a field or taking some grain for themselves, but it was on the Sabbath. And they said, they're harvesting the crop. They're working. Verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to them, See here, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're working. And Jesus said to them, He's going to give them, uh, He's going to give them uh, four reasons why they're wrong. Four reasons. First of all, the Davidic precedent. Human need is a higher moral obligation. Human need is a higher moral obligation. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread that was only supposed to be for priests. But they gave it to him anyway, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he gave it also to those who were with him because of the need morally and was, was greater. Uh, secondly, secondly, God created the Sabbath for the well-being of humans as a gracious gift. So Jesus says in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. See, if you're a legalist, you have it the other way around. You worship the jot and tittles of the law, you know, the exactness of it. But this is the spirit of the law, and he said this was to do you good. Uh, and then thirdly, tradition is superseded by the Messiah. 
Your tradition means nothing to the one who wrote the commandment. Jesus literally just said, uh, by the way, I wrote the fourth commandment, so I think I know. I think I know what it's saying. <laughs> so look at verse 28. Consequently, the Son of Man, his messianic title, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. I started this deal. I think I know. And then fourthly, look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. He went after this scene, same day, on the Sabbath, goes to the synagogue. The Pharisees are still following him into the synagogue. He entered again into a synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Doctors could not take care of people on the Sabbath. Can you believe that? No medical practice. They were watching him to see what he would do or if they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Rise and come forward. And he said to them, before he heals this guy, he looks right at the Pharisees. says, hey, watch this. <laughs> After looking around at them, he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. How are you going to answer that? And afterward, looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus healed the guy. And the Pharisees, you know, since they got such proof of this, you would think for sure they'd go, wow, okay, we changed, we're... We're going to go with you. Not so fast. When it comes to these self-righteous hypocrites, they're hard-hearted, just like the text said, and it moved them further in the opposite direction. Have you ever noticed that a lot of times maybe you've been in a debate or an argument, and the more heated it gets, the further apart in their arguments the two people get. So these guys just got further away. And what did they do? The Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Wow. Their reaction was so severe, we've got to kill this guy. If not, before we know it, everybody will be following him. They'll leave us behind. Our license to steal will be gone. Our power, our prestige, the spotlight will be taken away. We've got to do something about him. We've got to destroy him. The story goes, and I'll close with this. The story goes, a man dies and goes to the pearly gates. Peter. And Peter says to them, well, look, we have a point system here, and uh, you need 100 points to get in. So you tell me all the good stuff you did, and I'll give you the appropriate number of points. So go ahead. First guy says, I was married for 50 years and never cheated. Oh, that's great. Three points. <laughs> Three points for all that. That's it. Next guy says, I attended church all my life. I tithed. 
I was serving as a deacon. He said, okay, that's uh, one point. Then he says, I started a soup kitchen and a homeless shelter. All right, two points for that. It's pretty soon they get the idea. There's no way they're ever going to add up to 100 points. And at this rate, they finally say to Jesus, at this rate, the only way I'll get into heaven is by the grace of God. He says, 100 points. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with the new covenant, the new deal. And Lord, I pray that everyone here would be convicted by their need for Jesus and they would accept your provision for their sin and be saved and forgiven. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Very good. Very good.